You're listening to Sex Gets Real with Dawn Sarah. That's me. This is a place where we explore sex, bodies, and relationships from a place of curiosity and inclusion, tying the personal to the cultural, where you're just as likely to hear tender questions about shame and the complexities of love as you are to hear experts challenging the dominant stories around pleasure, body politics, and liberation. This is about the big and the small, about sex and everything surrounding it we don't usually name. The funny, the awkward, the imperfect happen here in service to joy, connection, healing, and creating healthier relationships with ourselves and each other. So welcome to Sex Gets Real. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hey, you. Here we are with another episode, episode 264. Wow. That number is just like hitting me literally right now. 264 episodes. Holy smokes. And some of you have been with me the whole time. Oh, I cringe at some of those earlier episodes. (laughs) But that's okay. That's the point. We get to grow and change together. This week is a little update on the polyamory's Me Too moment, uh, which is what it's being called by some folks following our three-part conversation that just wrapped up with Eve Rickert, Samantha Manowitz, and Ida Mundelay. Then I'm going to answer some of your questions, which I'm super excited about Some really great ones have come in over the past couple of weeks. So send me more. But before we cruise into the episode, I just wanted to say thank you to those of you who have already signed up to be a part of the July cohort for my online course, Power and Pleasure. I was so excited to see some of you signing up and joining. Uh, It's going to be an incredible time together. For those of you who are interested, it is a five-week course that's completely dedicated to exploring your pleasure. We unpack stories you've inherited around pleasure, who got to experience pleasure in your household growing up. We explore our senses and how they can connect us with our bodies and what it means to be sensual. We explore satisfaction and enoughness and how we can be in relationship with our hungers and desire. We dive into the erotic and sex, and then we spend time on boundaries and how your pleasure actually connects you more deeply with your power. It's primarily for folks who are either assigned female at birth, who are gender nonconforming, who are just coming out of eating disorder recovery, and or people who have started exploring ways to break up with diet culture, The April cohort has been magical. We've been having such an incredible experience. The group calls, our soul food, the conversations we're having, the feelings that we're bumping up into. It's so nurturing and so supportive and so vulnerable. I wanted the course to have an impact, but I was really not expecting the kind of depth and vulnerability that everyone is showing. If you want to join us for the July 
iteration of Power and Pleasure. It kicks off July 22nd, five weeks, almost entirely online with weekly group calls. And you can check out all the details, plus how to sign up and the pricing. There's tiered pricing, depending on kind of your financial availability. If you go to dawnsarah.com slash pleasure course. So that's dawnsarah.com slash pleasure course. And I would love to see you there. Also, did you know you can support the show on Patreon? Oh, I am so grateful every single dollar. And I'm being really literal when I say this. Every single dollar has such a big impact on my being able to keep doing this show because finding consistent advertising is so hard, especially in this space. And it costs me a lot of money and a lot of time to put this show on every single week, week in and week out for all of these years. So if you really like the show, whether it's a dollar a month or $3 a month or more, it actually matters a lot to me. And I'm grateful for every single dollar that you contribute. If you support it $3 a month and above, you get access to exclusive weekly content that you can't hear anywhere else or see anywhere else. There's all kinds of fun stuff in there. And if you support it $5 a month and above, you not only get the bonus content every week, but you can also help me field listener questions. So if you want to try your hand at some advice giving, that might be a fun tier for you. Everything is at patreon.com slash SGR podcast for Sex Gets Real, SGR podcast. And this week's bonus for the $3 and above Patreon supporters is by request. Someone asked me if I would do something like watching uh, an erotic film and kind of narrating it. So that's what I'm going to do this week. A brand new Four Chambers erotic film by Vex Ashley just dropped yesterday. And I have not seen it yet. So I thought that could be a really fun bonus. I'm going to watch it for the very first time and talk through everything that's happening and what I'm seeing in real time. It's about 12 minutes, so we'll see what happens. And that's going to be the bonus this week, which I think will be really fun and different. On to this week's episode. I want to start by speaking to a few updates in the processes that are happening around Franklin Vaux and the women who have been coming forward about the experiences that they've had over multiple decades with Franklin. And um, the thing that I think we all should start with is there have been interviews conducted with some of the other women who were in relationship with Franklin beyond Eve and a journalist named Louisa, and I'm guessing on the last name, I might be getting it wrong, but Louisa Leontiades, Leontiades, I'm guessing, uh, has conducted, she's a journalist, uh, has conducted a series of interviews with three women. And then there is a fourth entry by a fourth woman who did a whole bunch of sharing her experiences via email. And she has allowed those emails to be crafted into like a testimony of her experience with Franklin. And hearing their voices, especially considering how over all of these years, Franklin's version of the story has been what's centered, what's created profit and fame and popularity and name recognition. And it's time for us to hear 
from the women. And what gets revealed as you read these interviews or listen to these interviews is just how slippery a slope it is when it comes to emotional abuse and entitlement and control and manipulation, how easy it is to find yourself all of a sudden so deep in an unhealthy dynamic. And um, I want all of us to spend more time really thinking about the ways that we show up in relationship, the ways we deal with power, what we're communicating, what we're withholding, and the impact that that can have. So you can check out all of these interviews, and I believe there's more coming soon. So bookmark it at polyamory-metoo.com. So the URL is polyamory dash me too.com. And that link will be at um, sexgetsreal.com slash EP 264 for episode 264. If you just want to head there and then click through on multiple links. And again, while all of their stories are about Franklin, I really hope that as we read these stories, that we think about the culture that enabled and normalized his behaviors. And that we also think about the communities, including our participation in this, that accepted his version of the story while invisibilizing the women and the ways that culturally we do that so often, especially around like celebrity culture, and even the ways that we may be doing some of the things that the women are talking about ended up really causing them harm because we all have the potential to cause harm. We have all caused harm already. We will all cause harm down the road. That's just what it means to be human. And the more that we can learn how to really grapple with what that means so that we can not only prevent harm, but also have better ways for dealing with it when it happens, I think the better off we're all going to be, the healthier our relationships can be, the more deep and meaningful they can be. And what gets revealed as you read all of these stories by these four women, in addition to Eve, who we've heard from, is how much it hurts when someone is withholding information or not disclosing really important pieces of information and how um, how painful it is to realize you didn't actually consent to what happened because you only had a piece of the story. The attempts to control and to basically bypass important conversations and questions the way that Franklin would frequently twist questions back around without ever being upfront about what he was doing or why he was doing it. And the subtle gaslighting, how subtle it is, the ways that these women were made to question themselves and each other. So let's start talking about these things. It's the only way that we can start doing better. We can't do better by keeping these things in the dark and pretending that they don't happen. So head to polyamory-metoo.com, you know, me too, as in T-O-O, Uh, to check out those stories. There was also a post on Reddit in the polyamory subreddit about some of these updates from the women and some really great conversation unfolded in that thread. So I wanted to just share a little bit of it here. Uh, A user named throw away that fast wrote in part, this is just a part of what they wrote. There seems to be clear abusive situations there such as coercion for group sex, verbal violence, yelling, 
and taking financial advantage of partners. And that's enough to have a case for abuse. But I genuinely ask, how much of all that was told can't be chalked up to just being a shitty partner? I mean, I think abuse is a very serious matter, and we should not conflate those two things or mistake one for another. Being bad at communication, cold emotionally, not respecting of someone's pain, personally irresponsible, behaving badly after a breakup, those are things, in my opinion, that may speak to Franklin's inadequacy as a good partner not things I justify or endorse. And I always try to avoid those bad practices in my relationships. But can we really call that abuse? A lot of the narrative seems to center on those things. Maybe I'm wrong. And if you disagree, please politely argue against what I'm saying. I'm open to changing my mind. So uh, someone named Chelsea Does Love commented in response to that. And the response that Chelsea Does Love wrote was fantastic. So I wanted to share it for all of us to just kind of think about as we continue to really marinate on those three conversations that we've just had on the podcast. So Chelsea writes, I totally hear what you're saying here. And this is a really good perspective. I would like it to take it one step further, though, and suggest that perhaps shitty partnership needs to be examined further when it constitutes an abuse of social power. I think that oftentimes women are on the receiving end of quote-unquote shitty partnership, and that may suggest there's a broader systems-based conversation to be had about why these behaviors have until now seemed acceptable and something women are dealing with, specifically and in more compounded ways in the context of non-monogamy. Being a shitty partner is unacceptable to me in any relationship. And the fact that here there were patterned ways over many different partnerships that one person was shitty should be examined based on who he is and his platform of influence. The fact that this person happened to write a book about his version of these events, which paint them as justification of his redemption arc, is exploitive. The fact that he also positions himself as an expert on alternative relationships and abuse in relationships is just disingenuous. He has informed a movement of alternative relational politic, and as a result of that influence, many women are experiencing emotional violence in their non-monogamous relationships with him. I have seen it. I organize non-monogamy community, and I have listened to the women wring their hands about what to do about their shitty partners, as if it's their fault or responsibility to make it better. We are being exploited for our care labor and our social engineering in order to make these complex relational webs function, and it's not fair or just. The way Franklin has behaved in his relationships has informed what he has taught others to do in theirs, which translates to seeds of undermining, coercion, gaslighting, and manipulation baked right into the movement of non-monogamy. It's patriarchy and multiplication by how many man-type partners one woman may have. So throw away that fast reply. Those are great points and they make things clearer. Indeed, it's important to look at those things from a systemic point of view, which illuminates how apparently non-abusive things can actually represent really big underlying problems. Thanks for the explanation. And then someone else in the thread said that it, it essentially what they said is it seems like all these women are just really bad at polyamory. <laughs> which is like such a reductionistic perspective of 
this is such vast experience, but Samantha Manowitz replied, this isn't about women being bad at poly, but falling victim to tried and true manipulation tactics and undue influence. You can see this in high control groups like Scientology, one taste, as well as abusive family dynamics. So Samantha provided then in that thread two links that I'm going to share about abusive family dynamics and a podcast that talks all about systems of control. So if you're interested in really kind of unpacking some of this control and power and emotional abuse that we see playing out specifically in this situation, but also in so many others. I'll have those links if you go to sexgetsreal.com slash EP264. There, also, if you go to sexgetsreal.com slash EP264, you can also see a Twitter thread <laughs> that Ida Mondelay wrote about an update from Franklin's quote unquote accountability pod. Now, the update is something I am not going to link to. But if you want to read the, and I use the word update so loosely, but if you want to read the update, Ida has an untraceable link in their Twitter thread. And I think it's important that we use that link because we don't want all kinds of traffic going to this really terrible update. And we should be really centering the women's experiences and voices above all else. So what Ida has to say about this update is important. And if there's something you're going to check out, please let it be the women's stories because their voices deserve to be heard. So anyway, this update from this, I can't even use the word accountability person that claims to be representing Franklin is horrific. And it's actually pretty violent towards the people who are coming forward. So I'm going to share a little bit of what Ida had to say on Twitter, and then you can read the whole thing in its entirety. So Ida says, an hour before I hop a plane to Cuba, I see a post from Franklin Vo's supposed quote unquote accountability pod, which is a not an RJTJ pod at all. So not a restorative justice or a transformative justice pod at all. Dripping in overt and covert contempt, especially towards social justice work and survivors and hyperbolic as hell. And so Ida goes on to say, like, it's now more than abundantly clear that the work on Franklin's end is not being done in any semblance of good faith or attempt at listening. It's using some of the language of community accountability work without any of the substance. Its tropes are tired, its language is skewed towards the criminal legal, and it is in no way prioritizing community, kindness, collaboration, transparency, restoration, or any of the other values the folks involved in the survivor team put forth. Uh, so please read this thread from Ida because it's amazing and everything from Ida is and well thought out and spend some time really getting to know the women's stories, especially if you have in the past read Franklin's book, The Game Changer, because the main quote unquote character or person that he's writing about in that book is one of the four who have come forward to really share what her experience was of the relationship with Franklin. And it's not good. It's not good. 
So I want us to be able to continue to learn from what's happening in this process so that we can all really start thinking about alternative models of accountability and justice, both in our most personal relationships. How can we be more accountable to each other in our most intimate relationships? Knowing harm is inevitable. How do we repair? How do we hold each other accountable from a place of deep love and generosity? And how can we also do this in our larger communities? Because when our communities can't do this well, lots of harm happens. That's how we have rapists and sexual assaults happening in communities. And then people get ostracized. There has to be a better way. There is far too much abuse happening, far too much harm that's totally normalized or even denied, like this quote unquote update from Franklin's team. And we can do so much better. There's so many different ways of being with each other and acknowledging harm and tending to our relationships. And I just really want that for us all. So let's continue learning together and being uncomfortable and not knowing together because that's part of this. On another note, uh, I read a fascinating article this morning that I wanted to just talk about a little bit. It's in The Cut, and the title is, How Many Bones Would You Break to Get Laid? Incels Are Going Under the Knife to Reshape Their Faces and Their Dating Prospects. The link to the article is at sexgetsreal.com slash ep264. All the resources from this episode are there. And I just want to start, if you aren't familiar with the term incel, it means involuntary celibate. And it's primarily, though not entirely, cis men who feel really angry and isolated that the sex they feel entitled to, um, but aren't receiving. A number of mass murders that have happened over the past decade have been committed by self-proclaimed incels. And even inside of incel threads to this day, there tends to be a romanticizing of these mass murders um, because they see it as this really powerful fuck you to all the people who have rejected them or who they perceive as being the kinds of people that would reject them. And I think like what's important is that the heart of incel culture is deep grief, deep loneliness, deep abandonment, and exactly what Ida was talking to last week about these false promises that white supremacy offers us around having easy lives. And if we do X, Y, and Z, then we're guaranteed certain types of success and access and relationships. And that's not how it works. But when we bump up against the realization that what we thought we were promised isn't actually happening, there can be a lot of anger. So incel culture is deeply informed by toxic masculinity and sexism. And it's another symptom of a really broken system. One that denies young boys and men access to their feelings, a chance to practice communicating openly, um, different bodies and validating different ways of being in a body, uh, which bumps up against desirability politics and also diet culture 
and how toxic masculinity trains us that quote unquote men are supposed to look a really specific way in order to be quote unquote real men. So this new article that just came out explores a new trend among incels of doing some pretty extreme, in some cases, plastic surgery to make themselves look like chads, which is one of the phrases you'll find inside of incel community that is men who tend to be white, who are almost always cis and able-bodied, and are very traditionally attractive inside of, you know, patriarchy and toxic masculinity. So they've called these men chads. And so incels are getting jaw implants, shoulder widening surgeries, brow implants, testicle implants, nose reshaping, hair transplants, and a number of other procedures to try and give them a more quote unquote traditional masculine look that's aligned with what we see like mainstream male models looking like or chads. And what's interesting is incels loathe chads. They hate them. Who they hate even more is the women who date chads. But there's this trend now of getting plastic surgery to become the thing they claim they hate. And I think that reveals so much about what's really going on, that there's this deep desire to be accepted. There's a deep desire to feel a sense of belonging, a deep desire to feel loved and validated and feeling like their physical appearance is the only thing preventing them from finding those things creates a great deal of friction. And of course, part of it is true. You know, all of us have been indoctrinated into desirability politics and the bullshit that is diet culture and the gender binary. Women can be ridiculously mean towards men who don't look a certain way or whose genitals don't look a certain way or perform a certain way. And the ways that women police men is as toxic as all the ways that men police women. Now, the power and the access to resources and all the other things is imbalanced. But everyone suffers inside of these systems. And I think what's interesting is you can have all the plastic surgery in the world to completely transform your outer self. But if you still have a deep hatred and distrust and loathing of the very women that you're going under the knife in order to impress, no matter how pretty you are, most women are going to pick up on that hatred and that loathing and run the other way. And so that and the other thing that I just find so fascinating is like, think about how many women and I know I'm talking in a very binary way, because trans folks and non-binary folks and agender folks experience tremendous violence around their bodies. Um, But what I find so interesting is that for, you know, centuries in a variety of cultures, especially in colonized cultures and Western European cultures, women have been expected to alter their bodies in order to fit the male gaze. They've had ribs removed. They've done foot binding. They've gone through all kinds of incredibly painful alterations to body and wearing deeply uncomfortable clothing in order to be found desirable. 
And what I find so interesting is that incels are now in a place where they're trying to change their physical form in order to be found wanting and deserving. And instead of feeling a solidarity and like a deep understanding for what women have been going through, they continue to hate women and vilify women in so many ways. So I just I think that it's a really interesting thing. And I want us to be able to hold both accountability and compassion around these things. Like, I think it's important for us to note that actual terrorism has been waged by incels. And that is real. And we can't escape from that or make that smaller. It happens. The violence is so real. And I want us to also get better at asking about what are the cultural conditions that led to so many people, one, feeling entitled to sex to the point that it causes hatred and violence, and also what caused the conditions of so many people feeling utterly left behind. You know, anger is often a mask for grief and fear and shame. And when we aren't raising kids who are really emotionally aware and emotionally intelligent, Many people, especially folks who are men, default to anger because it's easier to be mad and more socially acceptable to be mad than to be sad or scared or ashamed. I think the article is definitely worth checking out because there's lots of really important questions that we can ask ourselves about emotional abuse, accountability, and a culture that breeds such disdain and fear and please go check it out and let me know what you think. Uh, the link is, again, at sexgetsreal.com slash EP264. All right, let's dive into your questions. Alyssa wrote in with a subject line of quiet sex, and the email says, Hi, I'm a new listener, and it's a pleasure listening to your show. My fiance and I have been exploring new sexual experiences, and it's been wonderful. But I would like to bring in more conversation to sex. He's very quiet and has admitted feeling like he doesn't know where to start. How do I encourage him to talk more during lovemaking without pushing him to be uncomfortable? Are there resources to help me? Lissa, thank you so much for listening to the show. I love that you're having new sexual experiences with your fiance and that it's been wonderful. What a wonderful thing to start with. And I love that you're feeling into your desire around what would feel hot for you, which in this case happens to be more conversation during sex. And when I read your email, just like all of this stuff came up for me because so many of us have really different experiences around sex and talking and how for some people it can turn them on so much and for other people it can actually like inhibit pleasure. And I had found some language around it for myself, but what really solidified my personal experience was I heard sex educator Allison Moon talking about this once and thought, oh my God, that's totally me too. And it gave me some language. So what happens for me is when I'm really aroused and it's getting really hot and heavy during sex and like the pleasure is amazing. I can feel an orgasm maybe building. The part of my brain that makes coherent speech completely goes offline. I sink way into my body and I really kind of... Um, swim in and surrender to 
the pleasure that is the sensations I'm feeling, the feeling of my skin, the throbbing of the blood in different parts of my body, smelling our bodies and our sweat. And while I will vocalize during those times, it's more like um, incoherent vocalizations of intense pleasure and not deliberate conversation. But I've been with partners who love dirty talk during sex, and they're saying all kinds of things and asking questions. And for them, that's super getting them off and hearing me say, you know, super filthy things or talk about how good it feels is part of their pleasure. But sometimes those very questions pull me so far up into my head that my pleasure goes way down. And so as I think about your question, Alyssa, I think about kind of this balancing act. I can really enjoy dirty talk and talking during sex and all sorts of situations. But my best pleasure usually happens when I stop trying to make words or make sense. And I just surrender to my body and my pleasure is just like, wow, it just takes over. And I want for all of us to be able to hold all of these experiences as being true and delicious at the same time and the ways that we can dance in this space. One person might get really revved up by talking and asking questions and hearing sexy things coming out of their partner's mouth, while another person finds that having to think and form sentences actually reduces their access to their pleasure and their body because using the executive part of their brain is using resources, essentially. And so that might be a place to get really curious for you, Alyssa, with your fiance. Your fiance might be someone who prefers not to have to think and talk during sex because it allows him to really be in his body and feeling all those yummy things. It also might just be that he has no idea what to say and he feels really awkward and so he doesn't do it. And I think that's also the case for a lot of us. Um, so one of the things that it made me think about, I genuinely don't remember the first person who shared this technique with me. I've heard it from so many sex educators over the years. I've shared it myself so many times. I don't know if there's an originator or if it's just lots of people all kind of came to the same language and it's just gotten shared so much that now it's pretty common knowledge. But one of the easiest things to do when you want to talk during sex and make it super sexy is to just narrate what's happening. Another technique is um, leading up to a sexual encounter, talking about all the things that you want to have happen. Then during sex, really describing what you're feeling and what is happening. And then you can even really extend the life of it. And after a sexual encounter, being able to reflect on all the things that happened and why you enjoyed them. You can get a lot of mileage out of those two techniques. So an example of just kind of like narrating what's happening. Now, of course, your tone of voice, your body position, your body language, your facial expressions, all are going to feed into whether or not this feels sexy or not. But you might be able to say things like the warmth of your body press to mine feels so good. Or I love feeling your tongue on my neck. It's so wet and warm. I'm getting goosebumps and that's making my nipples hard. I mean, literally just narrating 
the yummy, sexy, pleasurable things you're feeling can be a really simple way to talk during sex and to kind of explore that dirty talk space. Using a nice tone of voice and being really present with it also is part of what makes it really hot. And then, of course, as I mentioned, narrating what you want to have happen can be such a delicious way to get each other aroused, whether it's via text or over dinner or while you're just kind of making out, being able to say things like, I can't wait to unzip those pants. I've been dreaming about how your skin tastes. I want to get you out of those clothes. I desperately want you to peg me, whatever it is. Building that anticipation can be really hot too. And then doing the same thing afterwards and reminiscing. So if I were you, Alyssa, I'd start by asking your fiance what kinds of experiences they have talking during sex. Do they think it's something that would be sexy or does it actually take away from his pleasure? You two can even take turns uh, trying lots of sex with noises, but no words, trying sex with some words and narrating your experiences. Turn it into like a really playful lab thing. Maybe some of the times you're just feral and primal and grunty. And other times there's little instructions and questions. Also, asking him to describe what he's feeling as you touch him might be a really good way to begin. He doesn't have to then dream up elaborate scenes or make anything up on the spot. Being able to just really focus on telling you what he feels can be a way to kind of practice finding that voice. I think it's also really important for us to all remember that a lot of us have been shamed in the past for either not knowing how to do something or if we had a partner that was really sexually immature and secure. Sometimes what happens is we get shamed by them for not doing something the way they imagined it. So sometimes it takes multiple tries and lots of compassion for us to build up a sense of safety for being able to not get everything right and for being able to open up, try new things, make mistakes. So I think it's less about encouraging him to do a thing and more about really genuinely asking about his experience and being super curious. How do language and words impact his experience of pleasure? What has he done in the past? Has he ever fantasized about anything else? And letting him know directly, I would really love to experiment with talking during sex and trying out some dirty talk because I think it's really hot. And would you be willing to just like try some things out with me? And we're totally going to not get it right. And it's probably going to be awkward. But can we just try some different things to see what feels sexy? I think it's also really helpful for all of us to come up with a list of words that we both find really sexy and words that tend to turn us off. Some people really like the use of the word cock while other people like dick and other people like other words. And if you're in the heat of a moment and someone really hates it when their cock is called a dick, that might be a thing that's important to know before you get in and start using words. Another example is if someone just like called me a slut out of the blue I probably wouldn't feel really turned on by that. I'd probably kind of like want to ask some questions. Who is this coming from? What's the context? What do they mean? 
And that would lead me all kinds of places that weren't sexy. But if I'm in the middle of like super hot, intense sex with Alex, who I know deeply respects me and loves me so much, and he pulls that out and starts saying slut or asking me if I'm a slut, it's probably going to feel pretty hot. So the context of these words really matters. And once both of you have an idea of some of the words that you find hot, you can start playing with those and trying them out during sex to see what feels natural. Because I think the key in sexy dialogue is finding language and words that feel like you, not some performative version of what your partner thinks you should sound like or copying what you've seen in porn because you don't know what else to do. Finding your voice and what you feel sexy saying is crucial. And it might be things that other people haven't ever thought about. But what would feel most like him? How do you play inside of that place? One last thought uh, that I think can make this space a little bit easier is it can be really difficult to have someone just come to you and say, what are words you find sexy? (laughs) Because then often this sense of like, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I say something and they don't like it? And we start overthinking and being worried about shame. It can be really helpful maybe to watch some feminist porn together and see what language and words are featured in some of the films. And then the two of you talk about it afterwards. Wasn't it really hot when this happened? Is that something that you would find hot if we did it? Or um, what was the hottest thing that got said in that video? That's a pretty low stakes approach because it's not directly about you. It's about this third party that's doing something and then you can kind of discuss it. Also reading erotica to each other not only gives you a chance to connect around doing this really sexy thing, but you actually get a chance to say sexy words out loud that someone else wrote. You didn't have to come up with the sexy phrase. You didn't have to think of how to say it. You're literally just reading it and you can practice different tones and intonations, different body language. And that can be a way to kind of figure out what things feel the most to me when I say them, what feels the most fun and sexy. So I hope that gives you some things to discuss and to try and explore so that the two of you can find your version of sexy talk and what feels good for you both so that you can maximize pleasure because that's what we want. Thank you so much for listening, Alyssa, and for writing in. I loved this question and I hope there is much delicious sexy talk coming up for you in your future. Next up, Fabulously Femme wrote in with this. Hi, Dawn. I'm a straight white guy, and I love your podcast. So a little backstory. Back in grade school, I was bullied relentlessly and had zero friends. That led me to cross-dressing somehow. I was not the best looking kid. I wore glasses. And when I dressed up back then, I internalized this feeling of beauty because inside I felt as though I didn't belong. When I got to high school, I had like four friends, and I stopped dressing up. Then I moved to go to school, and being alone, I picked it up again. I'm still dressing up, and I have some very nice lingerie and dresses. The more frilly, the better. I know that you've done a lot of shows about trans people, but what about cross-dressers that are not trans? Can you address cross-dressing? Also, why do women's clothing feel so great on my body? 
And lastly, what's your take on sex dolls? Are they ethical? I have one and I love to dress her up with me as well. Thank you. I hope to hear this on the show. Best wishes. Keep going. Fabulously Femme. Uh, well, thank you so much for writing in Fabulously Femme and for listening to the show. I would love to have an entire episode dedicated to cross-dressing at some point in the near future. But I did just want to take a couple of minutes to share a little bit for now for anyone who's curious. Uh, I also just really want to say I am not a cross-dresser and I don't have much experience with people in my life who are. So I do not consider myself an expert. And everything you're going to hear is just based on either conversations I've had or research I've done in the past, but not from lived experience per se. Um, Part of that is because a lot of the people in my life live with a lot more gender fluidity. So even the cis men in my life often are more fluid in the ways that they dress and what feels good for them. But it's not a thing that they like label or see as different. It's just how they express themselves because they're really comfortable in that gender expression. So in the future, I really want to feature someone's voice who is a crossdresser. But in the meantime, there's a couple of things I thought we could just note. The first is, even though Fabulously Femme found that crossdressing might be linked to being bullied or being lonely, crossdressing is actually really common. And it doesn't necessarily have to have anything to do with a traumatic experience or isolation or a history of being different. There are lots of people who cross-dress for lots of reasons. And for some, literally the only reason is because it's fun and it feels good. So that's cool. I also just want to note that despite what we're told, clothing is not inherently gendered. We're groomed to believe that it is. If you go back a few hundred years in Europe, the most masculine, <laughs> the most masculine expressions of self for the most desired and wealthy men were long curly haired wigs, bows and lace all over the leggings, high heels, and lots of pink. Pink was seen as very masculine. So I think that that's just a simple example to say that like, No color, no fabric, no shape or type of clothing is inherently masculine or feminine. It's just that each culture makes up its own rules that then get followed for so long, it starts to seem like it's a given, but it changes rather significantly over time. The other thing that it makes me think about is like, there's so much distress that we see around like children that we have decided are little boys. So kids that are assigned male at birth and how little boys often want to wear like princess dresses and princess costumes. And all I can think is this literally has nothing to do with gender for many of them. For some of them it does, but for so many of them, it's just, if you have an option of like a kind of drab, plain, neutral colored pair of shorts and t-shirt or something that's glittery and sparkly and all kinds of bright colors and fabric that twirls and trails behind you and feels so soft on your skin and that like bounces when you run. That just sounds super fun and awesome. And I don't think necessarily has anything to do at all with gender. It's fun. And that's kind of a great way to approach clothes is what feels fun. (laughs) 
So anyway, back to you, Fabulously Femme. You asked, why does women's clothing feel so great on my body? Well, I think part of it is because silk and satin feel amazing because lots of the fabrics that get used for women's lingerie and women's clothing, you know, quote unquote women's, uh, is really soft and really um, silky. And the way that it drapes and clings on the body can feel really delicious. It can be a really sensual experience to wear lace and to feel just that little bit of edge reminding you of the thing that you're wearing or to have silk just gently brushing against your skin. Of course, that's going to feel wonderful. I also want to name that there's a lot of women's clothing that can feel fucking terrible. Like, where the fuck are pockets? And why do things, like, often feel so fucking stiff? Uh, But I think it's a really interesting question to think about how, for people who cross-dress, there's this option to opt in to the kinds of clothes that make you feel really good without the social enforcement of having to wear things that you hate or that physically hurt you. Like for centuries, European women didn't have the option to leave the house without a boned corset that made their shit so tight they could barely breathe in 10 layers of petticoats. Like there was no opting out of that and still having access to resources. So one of the things I think that's interesting about cross-dressing is that you can opt out when it's not fun anymore. But when it's fun, it's literally an expression of play and of pleasure. So I don't think that inherently clothing or cross-dressing is about sexuality or gender. In fact, it's this really shoddy and rough data that we have tells us that most cross-dressers are straight men who are married. One of the other things that then leads me to that I think is a really interesting question to consider is what kind of desire for cross-dressing would there be if we lived in a trans future? where the gender binary has been completely obliterated, where everyone just gets to be gender full, where however you want to express yourself and however you feel, that's how you get to be. And it doesn't necessarily have to be labeled, where men's clothing and women's clothing literally just becomes clothing. And in that future, wearing a dress wouldn't necessarily have anything to do with your gender or being feminine. It would just be because you wanted to wear a dress or it felt fun or you like the colors. I wonder in that space, would cross-dressing still be a thing? Like, is cross-dressing part of it a response to the taboo? Like toxic masculinity paints all things feminine as inherently less worthy. So it's part of what's delightful about cross-dressing coming from that taboo that's baked into it. I don't know. I mean, humans are far too complex for us to ever have a really simple or prescriptive answer. There's so many different reasons for people wanting to wear certain things and look certain ways. And I think validating that, especially when, when it comes from a place of enjoyment and pleasure, is crucial. We need to be able to validate each other's different experiences. But I do think that it's really fun to consider different contexts and different ways of being. And then what would get revealed if maybe, say, we completely eliminated the gender binary? How would that impact our fantasies and our desires? 
Anyway, uh, if you want some resources on cross-dressing, I would highly recommend going to kinkacademy.com. They have a whole series of videos on cross-dressing that are really great. So definitely check that out, plus all kinds of other things. And I just want to take a quick minute to jump in. Fabulously fam, your question about sex dolls. That for me is a gray space. Like I get the appeal of dolls, getting to create a fantasy where the doll represents whatever it is that you want and dream about, having the chance to literally craft an experience and a person without the complexity that comes with real human beings. Like, of course, that feels really fun. And I think as dolls become more and more realistic, we're really going to have to seriously contend with how that fits in with what types of um, power dynamics we're reinforcing and how that fits in with consent. You know, dolls are inanimate objects and they can't really opt in or opt out. But as they become more and more lifelike and self-realized through their software, then how does that space potentially contribute to um, further perpetuating the male gaze, to the dehumanization of the humans these dolls represent, the fetishization of certain skin colors or shapes of bodies? How are the dolls impacting a person's ability to find belonging with real flawed humans? I don't think dolls are inherently or automatically unethical. But I really do think that being able to sit in these questions that they bring up is really important, especially as technology advances and the dolls become more and more interactive and self-realized. So I think my answer is I'm still kind of navigating that space and I think it just really depends. You know, almost all of the dolls that I've ever seen had very exaggerated features that kind of catered to the male gaze. So very hyper feminine faces and mouths and bodies that were very normative and kind of contributing to all the toxicity around how women's bodies should look. And even male dolls um, tend to have very stereotypically um, ascribed features around like six pack abs and broad shoulders and all of the things that we're told we're supposed to find sexy. So I think it's just interesting. I think playing with dolls and having a doll that we interact with and dress up can be super fun. It absolutely can be. And I think being able to hold that question around, you know, am I doing this from a place of fun and being able to really realize what some of the scripts are that are informing my desire for these features in this doll? Or am I using it as a way to like avoid some of the awkwardness and the messiness that comes with having relationships with live human beings? I don't know. It's a it's an interesting place where I think we're going to have to become more and more nuanced uh, over the years. So I hope that was helpful and definitely stay tuned for an episode down the road all about cross-dressing when I can bring an expert or two to give us a really delicious exploration of the space. And to you fabulously femme, I hope you have fun dressing up and thank you so much for listening. 
That's it for this week's episode. If you have a question for me that you want me to field on the show at some point, send it to info at sexgetsreal.com or use the contact form at sexgetsreal.com. I will be back next week. I also have an interview with Sinclair Sexsmith and their partner Rife coming up soon. We are going to be talking all about dominance and submission. So keep an ear out for that. And until next time, I'm Dawn Sarah. Thank you so much for being here with me. You used to light up like a spark. Now you're blue, treading water in the dark. A huge thanks to the vocal few, the married duo behind the music featured in this week's intro and outro. Find them at vocalfew.com. Head to patreon.com slash sex gets real to support the show and get awesome weekly bonuses. As you look towards the next week, I wonder, what will you do differently that rewrites an old story, revitalizes a stuck relationship, or helps you to connect more deeply with your pleasure? So don't be ashamed.